like a bat out of hell, rip meatloaf. This is the Ammonite Movie Night Podcast. Uh, we are Ammonite Inc. I'm Kev, as always, with me is my broadcast partner, Jared. Howdy. Uh, Jared, we have quite a few announcements to get to before we get into the show, uh, so please bear with us. I do want to thank everybody. You know, we crossed 700 plays on Anchor Stats. Uh, I don't know shit. what that platform... It's a bunch of different platforms, so... Um, wherever you're listening to this, thank you so much, uh, to the dozens of Ammonite niche. Uh, we love you and thank you very much. Um, announcement number two, Austin Danger Powers, my spinoff show with friend of the show, Mackenzie Wilkes has begun. Episode zero is up. So go enjoy that. It's only like 20 minutes. We kind of talk about what the hell we're doing over there. Um, a very fun and very different show, uh, than Ammonite movie night. So check it out. One person on the show isn't a bitter asshole. That's the big difference. You know, uh, that comes up on episode zero of Austin Danger Powers. No, no, no. It's all in good fun. Uh, I also want to congratulate. You know, we have a friend who his favorite hobby is to complain about this show, um, even though there is a form for which you could submit a voice memo, which was one of his favorite things to do with me for years. Um, Our friend Brandon S., not to be confused with the button-making, loyal member of Ammonite Nation, Brandon Yu. Um, Brandon S. has started a new podcast with Jared. Um, it ha- does not have a title yet, but Jared, did you want to describe kind of the nature of the show? Oh, sure. So, uh, Brandon approached me, and he had a wonderful idea. He'd been li- listening to our pod, and and uh, Kevin, I hope, I don't want you to get jealous or anything, but when he approaches me about the pod, I, he doesn't complain. I'm sorry. I, That's curious. I just want to mm, got to get those behind the scenes aspects out of the way That's first. That's real curious. But he had this wonderful idea that we should start a Revenant only podcast. Do you guys have a name yet? Have you figured it out? The Revenant only podcast. That's the name. You're not going to go like wolves like us. The Revenant Only Podcast. The Revenant Only Podcast. T-Rop. I like it. Now, it's about the movie The Revenant. Uh, directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Inuardo. Inuardo. Keeping that one in, boy. We're doing um, a movie by him in about an hour, so. <laughs> but for our first, um, the first, th- the first thing we're going to do is we have a little Zero episode prepared for you guys, and we'll link it. In um, the Ammonite Inc. Instagram. We're going to do have a little chat. Talk about like, you know, it's very different from what we're doing here on Ammonite Inc. Um, the biggest difference is uh, there is an angry, bitter asshole in the Revenant pod. That's like the major thing going on right now. And we discussed that. We're going to discuss it in episode, in episode zero. I can tell you that straight off. But for our first, first pod, we have a special guest. Uh, playing the character of Hawk is uh, Forrest Goodluck. Yo, you guys got Forrest Goodluck? Yo, we got Forrest! We haven't even gotten... Yeah. On Austin Powers, we haven't even gotten the lookalike yet. So, I wanted to say that straight up, because now I get to tell you what the concept is. We sit down with each of our guests, we watch The Revenant, and we talk about it together. It's a groundbreaking format. It's never been done. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. The Revenant? Talked about... With such figures like Tom Hardy. I forgot Tom Hardy was in The Revenant. I know. <laughs> Someone named Paul Anderson. No relation. We're going to get him on. Are you guys going to get the bear? Uh, 
I need to check the bears' availability. It's tough. Bears are in demand in these post-pandemic times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the main draw, I think, will be when we finally get DiCaprio on. When we finally get him, let's talk about The Revenant, his time, how he felt holding that Oscar and knowing that the, it should have gone to the bear. Like, I think we're going to have a real moment. I'm, I'm really curious uh, about the show. I'm, I'm eager to join when the time is right and only when the time is right. Mm. Yeah, we, we can't have too many celebrities on, like, too fast. You know, we can't have you on. We can't have you on right after uh, Tom Hardy. That'd make him imbe- that'd make him look like a fucking fool. Yeah, I'm a tough act to follow and proceed. Mm-hmm. My the the girth of my stardom is so great that mm. it just wouldn't be right. It would just feel off. To be honest, now that we're talking about it, this is a good place to bring this up. I'm thinking of um, Brandon. This is gonna be news to you. Um, we're gonna have. Before Kevin comes on, the week before you come on, Kevin, we're just going to watch the movie and talk about it. Then Kevin will come on. We'll all talk about it. And then afterwards, we'll just have another one where it's me and Brandon just chatting about the movie again. Just so there's, like, no weird feelings. Kevin doesn't, like, overshadow anyone. And, like, you know, I I really don't want to have Leonardo DiCaprio come and be like, I have to follow Kevo? Of Ammonite Inc.? It'll be embarrassing. I can't do that to him. That that's true. You know, we get we get fan mail from Leo every week, and every week he's like, "Don't air this! Don't air this!" And the emails go on for like like I could have sit here reading it for hours. God, he really, really wants us to review the lo- Lost Highway. I don't know what it is. He keeps suggesting Lost Highway. And it's like, you know, we love everybody's suggestions and we take them all the time. A lot of our suggestions are stuff that's on our short lists of things to get to. I think, I don't think he wants to admit it. DiCaprio wants to work with Lynch. I think that's a thing. That's why he keeps saying it to us. He's going to bring up Mulholland Drive next time I have a little chat with him on the phone. I don't know. The guy seems unilaterally focused on Lost Highway. Yeah. It reminds it, him of the destruction of the forests that lead to such highways, you understand. It's a part of his whole thing. That's why he fought that bear IRL. All right. So that's, that is, what is the name of this again? It's the Revenant Only, po- it's T-Rop, right? The yes. Revenant Only Podcast? <clears throat> the Revenant, <clears throat> sorry. The Revenant Only Podcast, hosted by Brandon and yours truly, Jared. Howdy. Is that is that going to be a, a production of Seashell Seashell Limited? Yes. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, what a what a specific what a like. Ugh. All right. Well, we're going to have to talk about when that's going to be because it has to. You know, it could be soon. It could. You know, I'm around. So let me know. Gladly, gladly. But you know. All right, well, that's exciting, you know, um, a Revenant-only podcast from Jared and a dear friend of the show, and maybe future uh, guests uh, if he can get his head out of his ass. Uh, oh? The Revenant-only podcast? The Revenant-only? Right. Well, I was getting around, see, part of the plug, there's an art to a plug, you know, I was describing the the Revenant-only podcast as a Revenant-only uh, podcast. Right. But Ooh, I'm sure right, if you right. went on iTunes, you would find out that it's the Revenant Only podcast. I guess. All right, all right. That, I just, I just really wanted to clear that up right here, Jesus. right here, and right now. We needed to have that on the table, flat like a spread. And that's <laughs> all right. 
and that's and that's the new show by Seashell Limited. That's exciting. Um, so that's pretty much all the announcements we've got. So with that in mind, uh, I'm ready to start the show. Jared, what have you been watching? Uh, the first thing I wanted, wanted to mention is Gamera 3. Yes. The last in the 90s Gamera trilogy from Shusuke Kaneko. This one was really, really, really good. I'm, I know it's a big surprise for me to say that. It continued all the, all the neat stuff happening from the first two, first two films. Characters come back. You see their, you see their growth. And in little ways, they mingle with the plot. Like, there's a, the, there are two main characters from the first film that show up. One of them is pretty much relegated to a side character, but he doesn't show up because, you know, he just, he's the head of the Gamma Research, uh, station. He just sort of shows up because, well, that's where he is in life. I like that. It's, you know, it's, it's obvious they're just bringing back old, fa- old faces we're familiar with, but it's, it's nice that they don't centralize everything. He was just a dude on the street, and he just and he noticed, oh, Gamera's back. I'm gonna be I'm I'm gonna be a side character in this plot now. And then the ending of it goes full Ava, goes full end of Ava, which is always welcome. I didn't expect to hear that about Gamera. I know, right? To be fair, this is 1999, and um, this is like uh, two years after end of Ava, so everyone was doing this. Uh, neat neat story. The one of the main characters is um the daughter of Steven Seagal. And in a goofy roundabout way, they actually became connected to Hideaki Anno. Because uh, Anno himself, he directed it, he directed Evangelion. He came on and did a behind the scenes for Gamora 3. And it featured, her name is Ayako Fujitani. It, fe- it featured uh, Miss Fujitani. And I want to say a year later, Anno released his second live action film called Ritual, Starring Ayaga Fujitani. They just met while he was doing this little documentary. Oh, that's then joined his little wing. Yeah, just just kind of weird little neat thing. Do you mean to tell little... me that Shin Kamen Rider could be Steven Seagal? Oh, please, 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 please let there be a god for me. So so this Gamera trilogy in full now, like, I have to watch these, obviously. But, yeah. But uh, they were pretty good, huh? Very good in ways I didn't expect. And amazing in ways i did expect mm. production values the costumes everything about especially the third one like they've been doing this for i want to say four years at this point by now it's like okay second nature we know how to make a good outfit so let's make it the best um all around if you want to if you want to watch uh giant giant monsters that aren't godzilla this is a great place to start awesome being very re- being very reductive towards giant monsters but you, you know what i mean good place to start right here it's funny. It's funny because you don't expect it. Because at the time, Gamera here was most known from the MST3K episodes. I guess. Yes. Um, I guess. Uh yeah. I know. My, I know. Um. I guess people like you know you'd catch these movies on very late at night in the eighties and seventies. But, I mean, MST3K is how I figured found out about Gamera when I was like twelve or something. A friend to all children. I watched a movie called The Thin Man, directed by W.S. Van Dyke. Yo! You familiar? Yes. Yeah! Uh, you've, have, you wa- have you just watched The Thin Man or any others, or do you know about it, or what's up? I've never seen The Thin Man. Uh, I like the letterboxed uh, description. A husband and wife detective team takes on the search for a missing inventor and almost get killed for their efforts. Which is true, but it also misses out that, like, the bit is that the husband and wife detective team are raging alcoholics who stumble their way through the entire mystery and they're genuinely funny the whole time 
uh, William, William Powell is extremely funny. His delivery is uh, top notch, as the kids say. I got uh, I watched I watched a my first Godard film, Contempt, Ooh. or in the French is Le Mépris. Nailed it. Mm-hmm. It was good. It's I usually I don't know about you, but films about directors venting their spleen on screen, which mostly amounts to abusing the, wim- the women in their life. I don't really go for that kind of thing, but it's uh, Godard, beautiful, vu- beautiful visuals. It never, re- they never really sit down and try to make the director look like a good guy. He's an asshole all through and through. And Bridget Bardot is a beautiful, beautiful person. It is nice. It is nice to see a beautiful person exist in space sometimes. Yeah, I think uh, the only French New Wave movie I've seen was Breathless, also by Godard. Mm-hmm. But I, that's been 2,500. It's been 84 years. Oh, yeah. I have to check that out. It's I, I actually recommend it. The, I mean, the script isn't great, but the visuals make up for it. Like Every, every scene is a treat on the eyes. Word. And I watched another Hiroshi Shimizu. And this one was not about a bus. Oh, man. This is the, the follow-up to your thrilling uh, <laughs> Mr. Thank You report from last week. Uh, this one's gonna be this one's gonna be short just because uh, there's a lot to say. I like the Mister Thank and... You talk. That movie, like the fact that that movie has existed, like it's one of those where it's like, oh, that's oh. been around the whole time. Yeah, it's what? always been there. Yeah, Japan had a little had a very had like a little uh, genre way back when, which is literally literally translates to low like low scale domestic issues, like. Just families dealing with their stuff. No melodrama, just people sorting house. And uh, the messieurs, the one I watched, the Monsieur, messieurs and a woman, it's kind of like that. It's about a pair of blind messieurs. Ma- this is like, this is like moose. What is the plural of a moose? What is the plural of monsieur? Like a, touches your back and makes you feel all right. Oh, a person. massage therapist? But the plural, um, monsieur. Oh, man. Monsieur? Oh, I, 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 I get what you mean yeah i don't know but i'm sorry i it's can't no nah, you're good uh it's about two two masseuses that's what i'm going with who they take a they take a uh they take a little trip up the mountains when it turns spring and enters summer and they do their work up there and it's just them uh, a few days at these at these uh two side-by-side ends and the people they encounter and to make that's the uh long long version short it's uh about loneliness introspection and using the blind the blindness of the two characters as you know a way of examining how we see others how we see ourselves and what i found very interesting how we treat those who can't see at all which is a very very prominent thing but like the last shimizu film it's not really like it's a these are very serious ideas and topics but they are always portrayed in a way that you know easier to swallow very much uh we're going this is life we're going through with the flow and it's interesting for that I'm uh, I'm probably going to be doing these once a, once a week, so be excited for the next riveting chapter in. I love watching short movies. This is fa- these films are so fascinating when you bring them on the show, Jared, because I'm just like, this is just so far out of my wheelhouse, and I feel like I'm discovering mm-hmm. a whole new thing that I never would have known otherwise. So thank you. I have to. Oh, for uh, hell, of course, give it a give these a go. Mister Thank You is a great place to start. Well, that's great, Jared. You know, I re- I really appreciate you sharing this journey with us. Um, of what do you think you're going to watch for next week? Because I think I might, I might watch it. 
Yeah, you're going to jump on? Sick. Um, mm-hmm. This one caught my eye. It's called Ornamental Hairpin. I'm trying to keep these... I'm trying to keep these in the dark as much as possible. Just because, like, reading about them, you get the whole gist of the movie, and that's that's not the point. You've got to just experience it as the characters do. Right, you have to feel it out as it's... Yeah. Yeah. That said, you are, you are if you want to check it out and make sure... Uh, and like see what you're what you're going into please do so but oh here's the one thing i will tell you 71 minutes how long 71 71 minutes, minutes. come right? on man not gonna lie this is it's good for retraining your bar your attention span we, we live in a fast world and uh, sometimes it's hard to sit down and stare at a screen and not move or think you know I get that. I had something this week where it blew my mind how wrapped I was to the TV. Um, I got, uh, I yeah. watched Michael Clayton the other night. Yeah. Now, 2007, we talk about it all the time. The big thing is there will be blood versus no country for old men, right? Correct. So Michael Clayton kind of ran under, like it ran under the, uh, the people who knew it knew it was great, but it kind of went under mm. the radar for a lot of people because the hype was so big around everything else, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Expertly paced, incredible thriller. Uh, George Clooney is the legal fixer for this law firm whose client is this um, agricultural chemical company, and he gets wrapped up in this conspiracy involving a major class action lawsuit. Um, and so it's this mm-hmm. really great... I don't want to ruin too much because it's tightly woven and pretty good. And to say anything else would ruin it. But uh, great performances from Tilda Swinton and George Clooney and uh, others. <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> lot of character actors in there that are phenomenal as well. Um, Hell yeah. What else did I watch this week? I watched, uh, we had a Mamma Mia viewing party, the 70 millimeter community on Friday night. Uh, Mamma Mia 2. Was that, was that was that the one with Cher too? Mamma Mia 2 was the one with Cher. Where um, Mamma Mia 1 is like an organic, fun party where everyone's like, I'm pretty sure red wine was invented for films like Mamma Mia 1. Um, Mm -hmm. Just an absolute blast. Totally love it. Mamma Mia 2 is like Mamma Mia 1 went to Walmart. It's uh, very cold and boring to me. It's it's just not, for all the fun and excitement that's in numbers here and there, just doesn't quite match the same energy. And uh, the whole movie is about a death. So, not as fun. Mm, so it went. They went to Walmart and they didn't even pick up the shitty. This is the shitty wine, wine they, they had, had at Walmart. This that that wine flavoring or whatever. Oh, what are they? No. Oh, man, I should wake Julia up. What do they call it? Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love Mamma Mia One. Mamma Mia One, one of the greatest of movies ever made. If you hate it, you hate fun. Uh, incredible. But Mamma Mia Two has left me cold for years, and by years I mean two years because I only saw it two years ago. Um, what else do I have here? Uh, we watched the Black Hat Director's Cut, me in front of the show, Corey, some other people. Nice. Um, nice let me nice. tell you, people were wrong about Black Hat, or the Director's Cut is just that much better. It's full of, apparently, from what I understand, it's full of little things that have only made the movie better. Um, they moved a major action beat to the middle of the movie instead of the beginning, and a whole bunch of other stuff um, that just made the movie way better. It made me sad because Chris Hemsworth is Thor 
And he's in this movie that will never be made again because they didn't market it right. And so it flopped. Um, mm. And uh, mm. it's a shame because he's trying to do Pacino from Heat. Uh, he's trying to do a, his his American accent is beyond oh, no. the beyond. And um, I don't know. It would have been oh, great. No. But we'll never we'll never hear his fake American accent again. Um, we'll never, you know, those kinds of movies are getting rarer and rarer. Although, again, in the age of streaming, who knows? Um, but Black Hat, awesome movie. And uh, now that I've raced through those. You said the director's cut version, yeah? Yeah, it's kind of hard to find. I think our our friend who found it DM'd a guy on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, that's how you find movies. That's how you find those movies. <laughs> but it's it's basically the FX version with the Blu-ray theatrical cut edited in. Um, and Interesting. It's, and it's done so well, you don't know what's from FX and what's from whatever Blu-ray source they used. It's great. It was seamless. Send um, me that uh, Twitter person's name. I have to it. find it out myself. So we'll talk. <laughs> um, but that's kind of very, very quickly what I've been watching. Uh, we're trying to get everything in uh, while the internet plays nice. Uh, I mm-hmm. had an outage today. Jared's been spotty. We're trying to just get everything in. With that in mind, let's go really quick into a little segment I've forced us to do called the Boba Fett Book Club, where we talk about the book of Boba Fett. Jared, did you end up finishing this week's episode? Uh, It was really smart for them to do this weekly instead of putting up all at once. So I'd actually hit the second episode and go, oh, this has potential rather than going through like three episodes and going, oh, this is terrible because I did not finish episode four. It was it lost me i don't care how far did you get in because i did finish it uh i saw the best shot in any of these goddamn things which is the slave one sorry boba fett's ship jamming its snout Yeah, boba fett's starship yeah boba fett's starship jamming its nose down the sarlacc's uh face and then that had a then it like you know the camera let you watch this ship slowly enter the desert's asshole and that was the best part of the entire thing of any of these I, Disney pro- Disney Star Wars projects because of how absurd and hilarious it looked. Like a child holding its action action figures and its toys above the Sarlacc and going, and then they look for the armor. I love that. Did you finish um, the episode? You didn't miss much afterward. Uh, they did a Mando tease, mm. which, then what are we doing? <laughs> oh. Then why was this not a subplot? In the, Why did you not just do a flashback movie and then do a year of the Mandalorian where it ties in uh, because that wouldn't keep you subscribed for an extra year to watch Mando, of course, pretty much. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, um, very boring kind of business as usual this week. Um, I do think it is funny that they have written themselves into a corner regarding Boba Fett's starship <laughs> where they want to do a year of television all about Boba Fett's starship, Boba Fett, who is, we don't know anything about him, and he's kind of a clown. And Boba Fett's starship, the Slave One, we cannot call it the Slave One. Obvious, I, I get it. But but instead, it's just there. It's just a thing. <laughs> um, that that was never even with an Empire Strikes Back. I thought beggared belief that you would want to use it because it seems extremely uncomfortable to just like to sit prone in a in a ship. Yeah, I enjoyed the sarlacc stuff i thought that was entertaining i thought that visual was fun and cool and something new um 
but the ship the ship but, going face first into yeah the I, th- I i thought that was funny yeah <laughs> like i thought it was like cool uh, um enough enough cool enough or yell at telling me enough <laughs> <laughs> i feel like for me um you know i went in very optimistic about this on contingencies and just like any time i've been optimistic on a contingency before they screwed me and now i'm in the middle of the book of boba fett with two weeks to go and very little has happened roughly a third of a plot beat happened and and that stuff was explained away in Mando last year. So what am I doing? Is how I feel about it. Kevin, you're a volunteer in the Titanic, and your job is to shuffle the chairs. Don't worry. I'm becoming Jared. You've al- you've always been Jared. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Wait a minute. Star Wars is bad. <laughs> I'm Jared. <laughs> it's disappointing because. There's some stuff in, the, in there that's really neat. I like Boba Fett with the Tuscans. I like him becoming a really big, beefy dude. And that he straight up admits uh, in the last one I watched where he just says, Yeah, you know what? I would have just hung out there. I don't care. I would have just given up, given this up and just hung out with the Tuscan Raiders. And that points to a very interesting character. The idea of someone just getting really, really fed up with this life. Which he does mention. Right. It's also very, very, very shallow. There's no, he has nothing, no internality, nothing going on in his action figure body. Um, he doesn't even mention that his dad was a bounty hunter. He never does a, yeah, my dad was doing this and look what it got him. And I almost got eaten by, by the sands of Tatooine. What did that get me? It's, it's one of those things where it's, I don't know if they're going for some kind of subtlety and failing and it just comes off as shallow or if they're just shallow all around and they're just making something pretty and reminiscent for all the 30 plus year olds out there. I don't know. You know, um, at first I was like, oh, this is a little subversive and interesting, which is hilarious. Of course, nothing they ever do will be subversive ever, 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 ever. Right. Knights of the Old Republic 2 was 2004 and nothing they've done has been subversive since. If you remember three years ago, the Mandalorian, people were like, oh, this is interesting. And that turned into a commercial. So it's, you know, all roads lead, right? Um, it's hard not to be cynical when I sat there for 45 minutes watching, like, I know what happened to Fennec, I think, because they fucking said it, and I didn't need to know. But now I know. <sighs> like, I don't know. I liked, I agree that the warrior, the lone warrior with the Tuscans was awesome. Yeah. And I, I just can't help but feel like um, that should have been the move. Oh, have him just be a weird guy hanging out in the desert, and then at the end he goes, "I'm gonna go." Do you have a you have the reason for him going back to being a bounty hunter that isn't? Well, these guys are dead. That's the reason for fucking everybody, including Boba Fett, in the first place. And they hang a lampshade on that like 15 times by showing you like the fan service of Boba Fett, like watching Jango leave to fight Obi Wan, or holding the the head in the helmet mm-hmm. in Geonosis. Like we see those in these in this show, um, but like to what you know. To it's, what end? I, I don't know. And, and by the way, this is like thematics on the level of, oh, they're going to reveal it in week six. Sucks. Yep. It's all the, it, they, they do the visuals because 
it's way more it's way easier to grab someone's attention by going look you remember that rather than a character talking about what he's de- oh, what his yeah. ideas are or his feelings or ideas or things like that right i mean that's i mean i don't have to tell you i'm not tell i'm not saying anything new this is water right. wet bullshit here but the uh it's it's tough to engage now that like my 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 senses have been shattered by like this is going to be a movie. They cut it up into six pieces. It's going to move excruciatingly slow. It's going to be two weeks in the middle where nothing happens. And uh, yeah, I don't know. What if they did? What if they um, instead of having these two stories go side by side, and we already know what happens with the Tuscan Raider story, and we're going nowhere with the Crime Lord story? What if they cut it up so like they had the Tuscan Raider story be a full? two episodes and then we go into the crime lord stuff so we don't have this constant we're not constantly pausing and going on what's happening with the crime lord stuff because we have to jump back in time it might even force the writers to go well this is going to be we can't have a full episode be boring only half of it because the because the tuscan stuff would right because like because the two storylines are not commenting on each other at all. No, they have nothing to do um, with each other. They're they're just there to be in chunks of of something and to confuse you, and uh, in, in maybe into thinking that it's more complicated than it is. Yeah. Um, I'm watching Station Eleven right now, and that's exactly what Station Eleven has done. There is a longer present day narrative, and then occasionally, every couple weeks, when we need to know something, we see an episode through the eyes of another person. Yeah. And then we go into like a prequel episode that's just like, here's an hour in the shoes of this character and this is revealed. And, you know, nine times out of ten, it's to twist something and, oh, this background character was important or this kid turns grows up to be this guy or something. But it's something and it's interesting and it makes you think that maybe, just maybe, uh, episodes can still happen in the world. Mm-hmm. Like that, what you described sounds like they... They jump around in t- in the time and in in the story out of necessity. They realize, okay, yeah. you need to learn something right now, so we're gonna go look at it. We're gonna right. fashion a way to go back there. We're gonna change POVs. That sounds wonderful. That's telling a story. This is well, they're doing the side by side stories to distract you, and because I don't know, it's there's not much to say. I just don't like. They did, they did the reveal of Boba Fett sitting on Java's chair. Again. In its entirety. Mm. For no reason. I'm very frustrated. There are elements I do enjoy. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Beals is the, the evil, uh, hit it max. Did you get up to that part? Uh, to the very end. Nah, nah. Are you talking about the Ethorian, the mayor? Did you see there's a scene late in the show where they go to the nightclub and she does something and then she says, hit it, Max. And there's Max Rebo and uh, Din, uh, not Din Jigger, and that's the Mandalorian. The guy. Uh, the Jizz players? He's the, yeah, he's the Jizz Whaler. Yeah. He's the Jizz Whaler in the cantina. Yeah. There's Max Rebo. We've seen him. They've seen them on Boba Fett before, but she goes, hit it, Max. And they finally acknowledge that Max Rebo is on the show. <laughs> that I loved. But uh, think about everything I didn't love that that got love on this show. I don't know. Um, we'll still watch it, but I, I have a feeling that this is going to be our last Disney-era Star Wars thing um, until it's time to end the show as yeah. we've made our blood pact about covering those films. Yeah. 
we won't get fooled again. I don't even like Yeah, this is like, you know how I feel about it now? And it sucks because they put out the Moon Knight trailer and I'm really excited about Moon Knight. But fucking it's going to be a really great movie. And then the middle is going to be boring. And then it's ugh, fuck, oh, like, very frustrating. That Moon, that Moon Knight show is going to be. It's a it's a TV show. I thought it was a movie. Like um. Oh no no! This is a like Oscar Isaac is Moon Knight and oh. it, it's going to be a TV show. Okay, sick. That actually might be great. I I mean Oscar Isaac, he even even in Slop he turns in some kind of a performance. He's great in Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, even last Skywalker, he's doing what he can, and that's I like that pro- kind of professional attitude from an actor. Like, yes, this movie's off the rails. This show is off the rails. But they gave him the worst line. Yeah, no, you're right. Sorry, yeah. finish your point. But yeah, that's the, that's the other thing he did have to say. Somehow Palpatine's returned. Somehow Palpatine has returned. The dead speak. Honestly, I should open this show every week with somehow the Ammonite Movie Night podcast has returned. How have I not done that? That's uh, so. We yeah, we should just make up a list of of uh, ways to open the show and just roll with whichever one hits us first. As if I haven't done that already. <laughs> as, as All a... right, uh, Jared. Yes. Jared, any more thoughts on the book of Boba Fett before we close the book for this week and move on to our feature presentation? I'm not really into book burning, but that's where my joke ends. I thought as much. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk turtles. We're going to talk. uh, What was the other one? Birdman. About turtles. We're going to talk about Birdman. All right. uh, Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Um, but Jared, before we start talking about our first feature tonight, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there is a um, a story issue I had with this film. Um, sure. Now, I don't like to talk about Ghostbusters 2016 very much, but one of my core issues of that movie was they're in Times Square in New York City, and where do they go? They go to Papa John's, right? <laughs> so the turtles, right? <laughs> Yeah. They don't just live in New York City. They live in like, what would you call that area right by? Because Raph goes to the Waverly to see Critters, right? So where are they? They're like by 4th Street, right? Are they? They're like Lower East Side-ish kind of. Yeah. Right? They're in, that- they're in like the Lower Manhattan. They're in the cool boy section of the of the bus. And what do they get? Domino's. They get Domino's Pizza. Are you fucking joking, dude? You know, I watched one of the episodes, I watched the pilot of the cartoon, Mm. and the pizza looked way better than this Domino's cardboard garbage these Muppets are eating in this movie. You know, I think I'm going to cut the turtles a little slack, solely because they are 15 years old, and they don't understand taste. (laughs) They'll grow into it, is what you're saying. Yeah, they're going to, they need to, they haven't had the experience of wandering the alphabet city looking for dollar pizza drunk out of your mind, and you hope to God you step up on the, um... Step up on the sidewalk correctly. When they know that, that's when they will understand where to find good pizza. This is also like 20 years before Two Bros, so... <laughs> fair. Could you imagine? Very fair. Um, folks, <laughs> the first feature tonight is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, 
It came out in 1990. Jared, were you ever into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Because I never, I feel like our generation, although we had that four kids show, by that time, anime was so prevalent in our kids programming that we kind of missed the boat. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah. We missed the boat completely. The show ended. We I, I, we were still like toddlers when the, when the initial run ended. Yeah. And my parents were too, um, they were too old for cartoons by that point and they were never really the type for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles anyway so I had no way to for that to be introduced to me yeah exactly yeah and it it passed me by I remember talking about it with you very briefly throughout like you know when we were kids and stuff just because we talk about comics and the, the turtles were initially a comic did you ever read the old black and whites no not even now to prepare for this show which shows <laughs> that I'm just a complete sham um, but no, I've always been intrigued by the idea of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but never enough to, you know, seek seek it out. Mm-hmm. I don't know why there that is, because now I have seeked it out, and like, it's fine. Not something for 200 episodes or whatever, but it's fine. Hmm. You know, it's about four people hanging out together and getting annoyed and getting annoyed at each other. I mean... Would you say this is the 80s answer to Fantastic Four? That's interesting. I I don't know if I would... I, I don't know if I would go that far because they are indistinguishable. Sorry. I mean, obviously, that one's good with... That one does machines and that one's a rocking dude and there's a leader and all this. Um, but there's even jokes in the movie based on jokes in the cartoon pilot about these turtles being unrecognizable. I'm about to eat shit on the internet for saying that, but I'll be damned if I knew, if you asked me who the blue one was and held a gun up to my head, I wouldn't know. Well, shoot. Because <laughs> uh, I, was, I was just going to say, I think the strength of this movie lies in that the four turtles have actual personality to them. Like, they're all, like, goofy dudes who, <laughs> yeah, love pizza, skateboard. Like yes, they're right. all they're all Bart Simpson deep down, but it's like, <laughs> right. what if Bart Simpson was a little more pissed off? What if Bart Simpson was exceptionally dumb? What if Bart Simpson looked at computer, and I guess Leonardo is um, what if he was the protagonist? But like, I guess that that's just early Simpsons in general. So that was sorry to be clear. I I now know the difference yeah. between the four turtles. Yeah, but I'm saying beforehand I wouldn't know because yeah, I just didn't know. There's no visual indication for their personalities, except outside of obviously Raphael having the red bandana, Leonardo being the cool leader, and having the the blue one, and the other two are just all right. Right, that's a cool color. Except the song at the end clearly says that Raphael is the leader of the turtles. Did they? <laughs> because they gave they gave a fact sheet to the guy. Did you catch that in the end credits? I did not. Oh my god, it's great. I I gotta figure out what is that. I think it's just called Turtle Power. Yeah, see, <laughs> this is so good. Splinter's the teacher, so they... Okay, they were once normal, but now they're mutants. Splinter's the teacher, so they are the students. Great rhyme. Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Donatello make up the team with one other fellow, Raphael. He's the leader of the group transformed from the norm by nuclear goop. That rocks. That's wonderful. It does rock. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, they gave the guy the wrong fact sheet, clearly, or, Mm. I don't know, maybe he saw the movie once and was like, (laughs) I got this. 
I feel like we should we should make it very clear who the Ninja Turtles are. Sure. Um, Leonardo, of course, is is the actual leader. He uh, wields two katanas and he wears a blue mask. Raphael, the strongest turtle, likes to go to the movies at the Waverly on Fourth Street. He loves to cosplay. He's a member of the. He loves to cosplay as Ben Grimm, most importantly. Yo, how about that? Which is pulled right from the cartoon, oh, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. This might be from the comics. He wears red and he has a pair of Psy, which mm-hmm. is the little with the side knives. Uh, Donatello, he does machines. Uh, he wears a purple mask and he's the one with the big staff. And of course, Michelangelo, who is depicted on Wikipedia, he's described as the least disciplined and most fun loving turtle. Uh, he wears orange and he has nunchucks, which was a very fun moment in the movie. Oh, uh, when what? Which what? Which part? Which part? I could be mixing it up with the pilot of the cartoon. <laughs> that is very fair. No, which is where like the guy uh, isn't there a scene where the guy pulls out nunchucks and and he's like oh like no it's not it's from the cartoon <laughs> I'm such a hack <laughs> I'm such a hack to be I had a lot of fun with this movie but I'm also a complete hack cut yourself some slack when you started to describe it I instinctively started nodding like oh I remember that I remember that so I guess I'm a hack too um, I should stop talking like I know what I'm talking about because I've been wrong this whole segment. <laughs> Um, Jared. Yo. Big picture. What did you think of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I thought it was an excellent kids movie. Like, watching it, I was thinking to myself, if I was born in 1980, I would be so into these weirdos. Right. They're all, they're all goofy, charismatic. They have personality, despite, like, you know, them being very broad archetypes. But everyone has, everyone has a little something going for them. Um... Donatello going up to Michelangelo and be like, "What do you, what what do you think about what Splinter said to us about not being around?" Michelangelo just, <laughs> I give him three more minutes, and then he's not, and then you know, three dollars off. You get a yeah, you get a sense of who they are from that. Uh, Raphael being pissed off, how he had controlled most of the plot, like the character stuff for like the third of the movie. He and uh, Leonardo, Leonardo butting heads and then making up. Just these little things that round them out just enough that, you know, there's more to these goofy turtles. Right. Yeah. I thought it was pretty solid, too. I was, you know, I expected it to be at least pretty good, but I was surprised at what you got. You know, Um, I think for me, the big attraction were, were these absolutely incredible puppets, like mind blowing it's a direct evolution of so this is like one of Jim Henson's last projects for these uh, turtle lips, <laughs> basically, right? But um, they looked absolutely amazing and are a big step up from that Audrey Two puppet they had to do in slow mo on the set of Little Shop of Horrors. Oh goodness! Um, I thought the the story was a ton of fun. I thought it had a really great scale, although. Um, one letterboxed review from a friend described it as like the worst of the late 80s cardboard sets, mm. which <laughs> I agree with, but it works in the favor of the movie, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Like it absolutely is this like kind of, you know, I don't know how to describe you it. You kind of it imagine is cardboard. <laughs> you imagine a hand coming down and shifting one of the turtles out of the way of some guy attacking and then sh- and then like the hand comes down and shredders foot is already extended and kicks Donatello in the head then he and Leonardo square off you expect you you look at it and it looks like 
a little playset, and you kind of expect right. it to feel like one. It reminds me of the best of the Burton Batman set design in that same way. Oh, yes. Where it feels so much larger than life, it can't help but feel kind of artificial. Yeah, and it's done, and it's done in the favor of the project. This one, this one especially, because it helped contrast the areas that were real, like when they went to that house. And there were a handful of shots of the turtles in nature that should have been off-putting. But because those puppets are so good, they don't feel unnatural. They look a little odd, because some of the turtles are standing funny. They have the four of them lined up, and I don't remember which one it was, but to the far right, he's just posing away where his head looks really big, and he's like leaning to the side. He's just an angled line. Everyone else, all the three other turtles are standing normally, but this one guy is just at a diagonal. It's the strangest thing. But yeah, those puppets, they were phenomenal. I was, I was like prepared for it because, you know, you've seen images and, and you know, clips and stuff over the years. Mm-hmm. But holy cow, the only special effects I thought looked bad were the stop motion in the splinter flashbacks where because of HD and the nature of HD, you can tell that it's a completely different piece of footage that they didn't remaster, put on top of this beautiful film reel. <laughs> it was wild. It was wild. Right. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, there's so much wonderful stuff. There's that great 80s aesthetic of everything happening on the local TV news, mm. which uh, comes right out of the page. I, I'm not going to make an accusation here. It's a little bit of a hot take. Comes right from the pages of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. I mean, um, that was just the eight. That's just like the 80s for you. Is that, that is that so that's that's my question, right? Because the vibe was for me, is this an influence from Frank Miller or is this just the 80s? Because, of course, RoboCop is full of ads. Verhoeven followed it up with Starship Troopers 10 years later, full of ads. It's de- oh, that is a heavy DKR right there. I wouldn't I wouldn't blame the whole thing on it. The news. There was a lot of news in the 80s, but the presentation of it, the way it's done in movies after dark knight returns is uh it's very much influenced by that book you, you so mentioned you mentioned robocop doing it frank miller was hired to do the scripts for those two sequels like paulie v yeah rip off, no i'm not i'm not saying i'm not about i'm gonna edit this out because i'm not saying paul verhoeven is a ripoff artist <laughs> I, i'm just it's just an interesting um it's just an interesting confluence of styles that has to have some kind of influence somewhere, even if indirectly. Like, it's just interesting to me. It makes sense. These got this. That was the DKR was the catalyst. I would say it and Watchmen were both catalysts in their own ways. But DKR definitely stylistically, tonally was like, oh, this is how you make weird, dark comics. And then Watchmen said, oh, this is how you will make them for the re- for the next 40 years. Yeah, true. Mm. But despite despite it, despite those influences, this is a cheery little cheery little movie for for portions of it. Starts out very starts out very dark with certain at with certain aspects. And then it's oh, we're still it's still turtle time. <laughs> I think goofing. I think it's great. Like no matter how how dark it seems and how smelly it is. Mm-hmm. Cause I think this is one of my notes here. This is the smelliest movie of all time. I think. Oh yeah. Even the turtles, the turtles, especially they look like they smell. <laughs> they, did you notice how they all have that like little moisture to their bodies? Like there's always slick. Yeah. What the hell is going on there? It's, it's like gross, but also kind of cool. 
Uh, can we talk about Shredder's master plan for a second? What was his master plan? What is Shredder's master plan? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> um, Who is in the foot? What is the foot clan? Because I feel like the foot clan is just a Bart Simpson factory in the Lower East Side. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, there were a bunch of Bart Simpsons running around in, in the foot factory. So you, I'm not, shouldn't be too, shouldn't be too hard on yourself. What was, I'm going to say this again. What was the plan? I, I'm not even 100% sure. I have all these notes about this, and I have no idea what the plan was. I guess the plan, of course, was to train these children in martial arts. <laughs> I guess the idea of... And then just commit crimes? Like indoctrinating them to becoming the new generation of ninjas? I think. Let's see. Is there a... Let's see... Let's see. Oh, that's right. No, he's luring them in with the arcade games and stuff. He's hypnotizing the kids um, with mind control. <laughs> Excuse me. Right? That rocks, actually. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, one of the one of the kids was the was the boss's son, right? Mm-hmm. Who inexplicably, you know, my boss has never shown up to my apartment. With their kid and come in. <laughs> yeah, if my bo- I, if my boss said, "Hey, can I come over?" I would say no. But I don't know. Maybe it, it implied that they're friendly or there's some kind of like fr- actual f- relationship outside of their work environment where they're friends or some kind of mentor the, type thing. So I guess there, there was a day. There was a day where my tires were literally frozen to the ground and I couldn't drive my car during a blizzard, and my supervisor from Best Buy drove to my college campus and picked me up and I worked at Best Buy for eight hours or whatever. That sucks. So I'm sorry. That's possible. Yeah, it sucked. It was terrible. In retrospect, what the fuck? Just what the fuck? <laughs> that blows, man. I'm sorry. That that's life. But anyway, um Yo let me Wanna do something real cool about this movie? Up until uh up until the Blair Witch project, it was the highest grossing independent film. It uh it grossed two hundred and twenty million against thirteen point five. Thirteen point five being the budget. For the budget to be so low is absolutely crazy to me, especially because the sequels are not looked on as high enough. Mm. You know? Yeah, they I've I've heard nothing about the sequels except that the video game adaptations are dope. Turtles through time is good, I think. That's I think that's the one. Turtles in Time is good. Yeah. I was a Simpsons kid, mm. same game. Yeah. Oh. Same game. Great beat him up. But uh, I think the Foot Clan, by the way, to answer our questions, was just there to commit crime in general. There was no master plan there. <laughs> um, except, of course, once he realizes Splinter is still alive and is a giant talking rat that has a one-on-one with a child. <laughs> <laughs> I fucked I, up movie. I mean, they clearly started out with, what if Daredevil was silly? And then they went from there. Like, you know, the Foot Clan being the hand, you know, the the hand from Daredevil. The fact that they, the the comic itself, it opens up with um the nuclear waste and you see the turtles get uh, doused with it. There's also a child nearby that gets doused with the chemicals as well. So, take that with what you will. My God. This is absolutely insane. <laughs> it's really great, honestly. Just Could you imagine, thing. though, like, 
No, no, April, it's okay. The turtles were ordinary animals, and then one day they fell into a pile of nuclear waste. You'd think you'd think there'd be like um, Team NNT rain, where the radiation from their bodies is just like. Oh no! Are we going here? <laughs> I already brought up Dark Knight Returns. We might as well bring up the. Oh no! That was a terrible thing to do. Spiritual successor from across the pond. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, let's see. What other notes do I have? Elias Cotias as uh, Casey Jones, kind of an awkward. Uh, <laughs> A little bit more awkward teen than I expected out of Casey Jones after years of seeing him, you know what I mean? I have no idea who Casey Jones is. He was just a guy that showed up in the movie. I know he's supposed to be cool in the comics or I the think there TV was, show or something. I think there was supposed to be some kind of chemistry between him and April, which is weird because although he was 28, he looked 97 years old. It was like Clint Eastwood from this year put a hockey mask on. It was wild. <laughs> he, Ooh, yeah, he really looked... He really looked like the oldest member of the Breakfast Club in that. Anytime he hung out with April, just very uncomfortable. Weird guy. <laughs> he didn't do anything for the movie. I like. I liked when he and Raph uh, beat the crap out of each other at the start, but otherwise he just sort of took up some space. Did you like that scene in the farmhouse when he's cutting the carrots with the samurai sword? <laughs> and he can't even quite, he can't even get, did you notice this? He can't even cut the samurai, the, uh, the carrot through? <laughs> it's really funny. What the hell was that? just i i don't know it was just a joke because they thought okay let's make a joke this is the joke today all right here are my notes just to go through just to make sure we got everything sure the puppets we talked about the adaption from the 80s show it is the 80s show yeah in a way that i wasn't expecting although there's plenty of the darkness and the new york city and and all of that that you would want is there on the screen i think what is Shredder's master plan? Uh, lure kids into Sports Plus and then hypnotize them to become ninjas for reasons. Um, odd. That sounds like the best birthday present a Long Islander could have. <laughs> I agree. Man, that one day we put like 40 bucks into The Simpsons, but we beat it, and my wrist was sore for two weeks. Worth it. Always worth um, it. The turtles live in New York City in order from Domino's. We touched on bad, it. Bad, 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 bad. Um, Splinter inventing Cowabunga at the end. Absolutely loved it. It was cute. It is exactly what you want. It's exactly what you want from the end of that movie where it's like something's missing here and there is something else missing is the theme actually mm-hmm. while we're on it. Where was the theme? I didn't know the team. Oh yeah, that theme. The one where they sing about it. You'd think I um, maybe it was like asked around. Maybe it was and no some, one knows. Maybe it was kind of like it's not even at the end of the credits, like what they did with the first Iron Man movie, where they threw the Sabbath song at the like, the very end of the credits. Nothing? No, I hung around. Nothing. Lame. That's unfortunate. <sighs> yeah, very weird. I think it's either a rights issue or, you know, uh, $13 million in 1990. I mean, I would, you know. Like, why wouldn't you commission a single, right? Because the previous summer, Prince and Batman, and that began that whole trend. That would have been really smart, actually. Ooh, I didn't think—I did not think of that. The bat dance, the previous year. Oh, party man. What? Wait, is it party man? What's a oh, god? I'm I'm like falling over myself this tonight. Oh, I don't like know bat, what the deal I think is. it was like bat. It was just called uh, like bat dance or something. Ugh. The single is bat dance. Yeah. But then Joker has a song called like party man. <laughs> yeah, it rocks. <laughs> yeah, it rocks. <laughs> um, Jared, what what other notes do you have for? Uh, 
Oh, wait, before before we get to your notes, sure. there's one last thing that I was like, this is bullshit. April O'Neil lives. O'Neil. She lives in the second story apartment of an her dad's old shop. Yep. What kind of rent is this on the shop? Ooh. I don't know. I mean, that was 1990. Never open. 1990. That was a different world. That's true. Fair enough. Mm. She probably could doesn't have to work a day the rest of her life if she sold that shop to like you know. Oh, if she. Well, we know that Shredder Shredder sold that warehouse to a Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we made. It. That's how we uh, came back for the sequel. Sold it to Whole Foods, and that's how he funded his operation. <laughs> oh my god. The, um, <laughs> did you see the but, kid but, yeah. <laughs> when they were introducing Shredder's like factory factory dungeon Hellland? Did you see the kid with the gigantic cigar playing pool? Hell yeah! <laughs> it's just the best shit. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> it's just, they had a lot of fun visuals. They didn't like let you stop to think about. They were just all weirdness. The uh, the the uh, friend of the show, Chris television stacks that shredder was watching as april o'neill went on the uh went went on and was uh, interviewed just a, yes one of them they're all clearly crappy um crt t- tubes it just one of them is like broken and shifting and just ooh, that's so cool i like that i don't know why it's there but that doesn't matter because that's great tremendous vibes in this one I absolutely loved the look and the feel of the world. Like, oh yeah, they did do a good job uh, in in every way that uh, potential future episodes Super Mario Brothers gets it kind of wrong in the wide scope of it. I feel like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles does an amazing job of capturing the vibe. Yeah, honestly, uh, similar in a way to other great comic book movies we always talk about. Now, not as great in my opinion. Um, this is a, a kids movie. Um, not as great. But is it is it too different from the way that Tim Burton took the vibe of mid-80s Batman comics and put it on the screen? Or Sam Raimi, the Stan Lee Spider-Man, and put it on the screen? Or Richard Donner, the original Superman origin, and put it on the screen? I think it's I think it stands in terms of adapting the material, if the material is the cartoon, you know, right up there in my opinion. It, in terms of the job it did. It recognizes the strengths of this franchise as a whole and built off of that what do people what do people want to see out of this how should it look it never oversteps itself into into goofiness where it's just unbelievable shredder shredder is never like a high-end operation like i said before he has a bunch of crappy crts he has stacked on top of himself because he thinks that's what a uh, cool evil crime boss does again all the sets look like cardboard they look like a hand's gonna reach down and shift the toys around fits the vibe and sure that's that was probably done because you know a kid could more easily imagine themselves buying the toys and playing with them but i guess i'm praising consumerism because that's if they they aimed for that then they succeeded and it managed to not look like crap the whole way through that's right all right as as you were saying that i found a photo of jim henson with the turtles i'll be putting up on the Ammonite Inc. Instagram tomorrow. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Look at Leo. Um, look at Leo. Right? Isn't that... Like, oh, sorry. The, that's Donatello. Look at Raph's feet. Yeah. 
Like, that's what I was talking about when the four of them in the field with the lighting and one of them is standing awkwardly. It was kind of like that. Just, ooh. <laughs> you chose that. Did you choose that? Did someone choose it for you? Did Jim Henson do this? Did he think it would be they funny? Make you, did, the, did the boots make you do that? <laughs> when you when you wore your turtle feet <laughs> um with all that in mind i am done do you have any more notes jared uh no it was good good movie all right great right um jared out of five what would you give teenage mutant ninja turtles three and a half but like not in a mean way just that this was a great kids movie does what it does what it's does what it sets out to do that's wonderful i am for that and for giving me the sense of completion with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like now I at least understand. And maybe one day I'll go on that journey when my 90 other things are done. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm going to give it a four. Okay. Because, duh, that's what I do here. Um, there, so there's a, um, there's a great story behind the creator of TMN, TMNT. He amassed so much money and he decided, you know what? People are paid like crap in this industry. Let's let's make a company where they get paid their due and they're they're allowed the freedom to do so. And he just sunk fourteen million dollars in late eighties terms into a studio that just hemorrhaged money for years. But it's a neat little story. Uh there's a vi- there's a video about it, uh, Comic Tropes, uh, a YouTuber we're familiar with. He did a video on it. I don't think it was very recent. It was like a few years ago, but we should leave it. We'll leave it in the, uh, what is it, the footnotes. We'll put that in the show notes. There because, we go. The first show of all, if you're anything like us, you should be watching Comic Tropes, uh, Dear Hero of the Show, and Dream Guest Comic Tropes. That'd be wild. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a cool you guy. Get him on, you should get him on The Revenant Show. Sorry, The The Revenant Podcast. Thank you for correcting yourself. Yeah, I have to go back and edit that. I apologize. It's okay. We understand. It's a new thing. <laughs> All right, I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, that's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's um, still today some incredible uh, practical effects, an amazing representation of what makes the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles great. Um, and it's a ton of fun if you can get over the Domino's thing. <laughs> uh, to be very fair, I will never get over it. That's the reason why it's not a four. The half star, the half star <laughs> missing is because I had to look at Dominoes in the eight from the eighties. I was gonna say it's heroes in a half star, which I'm happy I said while you were trying to drink a thing of water. Oh, poor Jared's dying. I'm back. I lived. <laughs> All right. So, um, from the sketchy, filthy East Village to the post Disney Disneyfied Midtown Manhattan just in time for an evening performance of Riggin Thompson and what we talk about when we talk about love as we transition into discussion of Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. All right. Kevin? Yeah. What'd you think? Birdman. Uh, Here's a quick story about Birdman. I got a torrented copy of this movie, like, right as it came out. And we were going to watch it as a family. And it didn't work on the TV. And my family wanted to watch American Sniper. So I let them watch American Sniper. And I took Birdman upstairs. (laughs) Because fuck American Sniper. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Birdman is one of my favorite, uh, I guess, like, 
I don't know how to like of the movies that have won best picture. It's one of my favorites. I loved it then and I love it now. Um, it is absolutely not for everyone. Uh, it is extremely stylistic. Everything about it is done on purpose. And for, I have a conspiracy theory about it. We'll get to in a little bit. Sure. Jared, what did you think of Birdman? The Skype ringing tone at the start gave me a Vietnam flashback. <laughs> See, I never used Skype, so I don't have that problem. I use Skype a lot, like uh, in my college days. So it was just a, heard that and just everything in my body went rigid. You know, I'm not going to lie. When you when you got up close to the mic there for a second, I thought you were going to say this place smells like balls. I did that on purpose for that reason. I was just, was just uh, I'm going to be a little tricksy. Damn, will he, won't he? Saving, of course, that content for this uh, for the the Revenant podcast. <laughs> God, <laughs> Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu. What else is he? Same director. What else has he done, Kevo? Well, there's this movie that's leaving the Criterion channel in a week, so I'm not going to get to it. Amores Peros. Excuse the language. Is that on um, Is that on the Criterion? For the next, like, five days, yeah. Oh, thank you for letting me know. I was thinking about watching that. Um, Babel is his. Beautiful with an eye is his. Which, if you remember, was like Javier Bardem's big follow-up from No Country for Old Men. Mm. Um, that a bunch of people already saw and were disarmed by because it's a foreign film about it's not about Javier Bardem. It's not about a violent dude for two and a half hours. Yeah, uh, he also did Twenty One Grams with uh, Sean Penn and Birdman's Naomi Watts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't. The only other movie by him I saw was The Revenant, and the less said about it, the better. I you know, I wouldn't want to ruin your show. Um, but I love Birdman, and. If you could elaborate on your bird thoughts. My bird thoughts. Hmm. Everything in this movie is very deliberate. It's it's a movie where you have to you absolutely have to trust the people behind it that they know what they're doing and you're not going to try to outsmart them by pointing out like errors that you see. Everything you do, everything they've done is for the uh Keaton character. How his insane neuroses have morphed the world around him into his own, like, psycho psycho bubble, his little monkey sphere in his head. Even to the point where you, when you separate and follow a different character or two characters, you, you're still getting his perspective of them. This is him, what he's imagining they're talking about, how they interact when he's not around. That is so important to keep in mind. And... I know a lot of I've seen I've seen a lot of uh, people who've reviewed this film. People that I really whose opinions I really value and trust. They get really annoyed. I've seen a lot of people take umbrage with the scene where he confronts the critic and like calls her out, if you will. And I was thinking like, oh, I I don't remember that scene really being the way you describe it, where like an anti-critic thing. But I'll watch it. I'm watching it was like, how is this anti-critic? This just makes Keaton's character look like a dumbass. Exactly. The whole point is that everyone's a stupid dumbass in this movie. Like Keaton's a whole thing. Like, yes, he has some truths in there, but his way of going about it and in the broader things of his of him going up and talking is, oh, you're just neurotic and scared. This isn't a t- big takedown. This is another character. This is another part of a character study. Um, 
I did not like the movie as much as I did back then, mostly because what I went to this movie looking for way back has my my interests have changed. I still think it's pretty solid. It's a weird, weird, weird character study. It's a weird way of exploring a person through how he interacts with his surroundings. It's ve it was unique in that. What do you think of the? Before I go on about it, what do you think of the gimmick, the one shot gimmick that they, you know, utilized throughout the th throughout the film? Um, I thought at the time there was too much noise about it. Um, because then people could go, well, it wasn't that impressive to me, and all this other BS to prove oh. you're smarter than this movie. Oh, yeah. Usual. Um, while you're proving the point of the movie, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> My I favorite absolutely, people. I love the way it looks. I love the way it feels. I love when we know we're in a trick. Yeah. I love when we know we're being fooled into thinking it's one shot, when it's clearly, we've clearly cut and we've picked up coming into the bar. Or I don't know X Y Z scene. You could you could pick like five of them. Mm -hmm. um, it totally furthers your thesis of basically the whole movie is Riggin Thompson's mind mm -hmm. reading everything he sees. You know, mm -hmm. um, which which is made text in the flying scene, mm -hmm. the first one, not the regrettable last one that mm -hmm. almost ruins the movie for me. We'll mm -hmm. get into we'll get into it, but. Um, yeah, I I absolutely think it's great. I think it's as integral to it as the drum, mm -hmm. which both both tricks tell you that look we're in this guy's head, mm -hmm. and everything about this movie, the way that people interact, the way that they say things, all of it is how he's processing it, and mm -hmm. we're there in real time as Michael Keaton agrees to do the Flash movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the funniest part about this whole thing seeing this movie from uh goodness eight years in the future just yeah gee, gee i guess you did you didn't mind being batman that much did you but even then he did it's not even like he disappeared or like took on too many roles he just did he just uh stopped acting for like a, a, a decade and a half he just didn't wasn't That's doing right it. I, I mean he also had the indie comeback he had the artful comeback that riggan thompson was looking for mm -hmm. when he pulled the trigger at the end of this movie right he was excellent in the founder. He did uh, not the most artful movie, but Dumbo. He's he's in he's in that, which is far from commercial. Burton. Uh, yeah, Burton's Dumbo. He's in it. Oh, he plays basically Walt Disney. Oh, I'm telling you, man. There's a lot going on in Tim Burton's Dumbo. <laughs> Damn. What? <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, like my 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 point is like. I don't know what my point is anymore because I came into this like, oh, well, Michael Keaton's doing Batman now. But Michael Keaton was in the RoboCop remake. He was in, uh, well, he was in Spotlight, which was excellent. But I, I guess the whole movie really is about at its core, like, is the pursuit of art worth it? Or does, does that mean anything? I suppose. I don't know. I'm having a hard time now because my shit got blown up by brutal reality. Well, the does the pursuit of art mean anything? That's a self. That's something. You, that's something each person has to figure out themselves. And it, right, at least for I'm not. I'm going to speak for the. I'll try to speak for the character. But it seems like he's obviously let his want for art spiral into self-absorbed desire for fame to prove himself to be 
seen and remembered. He has that he has that um that part towards the opening where he's talking to his ex-wife. And he's talking about how he was on the flight with George Clooney, and he's thinking, oh, my daughter's going to open the paper and see Clooney died on this flight, and I'm not going to be mentioned at all. And she me- and then she stands up and says, and they chat more, and she's like, yeah, we got divorced because you threw a knife at my head. It's like, ah. And right, where you said, what does the pursuit of art mean? I think by this point in this character's life, he has lost the desire to make art. He's not looking to make art. It's this very trying to find meaning in his own life. You know, the Raymond Carver napkin, he's holding onto this piece from his childhood, trying to like rationalize, oh, this means something. This will mean something to me. I'm going to take this, what he's done, right, and make it, and my life will mean something. It will be a full circle in my life. He's trying to look for that. He's beyond art to the point where, I don't know. It's a cocktail napkin. He was drunk, Ed Norton's character says. That was really good. That scene was very, I liked that. Which is like, damn. It was a cocktail napkin. You're chasing after the drunken praise of Raymond Carver. Mm-hmm. Whoopee, also, like, outside of my English classes where I worshipped Raymond Carver for years. Um, what, you know. Meaning. Was he famous? What was the what is the meaning of it? It's just there is no meaning. No, he, it's the meaning he created for himself. Again, just trying to complete his life, trying to create some sort of sin, something to fire off in his head that feels complete, feels good. Otherwise, you know, why would he be? Why would he be doing this specific play? I mean, it does tie into the character later on. But I feel like that's more of a story thing, <laughs> like done for the sake of the story. Right. How did you enjoy? I really enjoyed Norton and Keaton's interactions. Like when he's he's chasing Norton down the hall, smacking him with the <laughs> smacking with the newspaper when he's in his underpants. <laughs> it was really, so good. He's not even fighting back. It's, it's so pathetic. I love it because Ed Ed Norton is this walking symbol of everything Keaton is actually trying to be, mm-hmm. which in reality is just as problematic as Riggin Thompson was in his height anyway. Oh, yeah. Right? Look at him. He's trying to assault uh, a poor woman mid-scene, right, on stage. Oh, yeah. And he's being a stuck-up asshole in the middle of a preview. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, the scene with the gin? That's... Oh, my God, when he berates Keaton in the middle of a show over mm-hmm. a swapping out the gin? Which also, I mean, also, you're adapting Raymond Carver, I get it. Yeah. Like, you have to at least check about the gin. Yeah. <laughs> the... Mm, that scene that scene stuck with me this time around because the the seamlessness of the they're acting in a play to the camera slowly turning and him acting like an asshole. There's no distinction between his acting self and his real self. The camera doesn't acknowledge it. No one seems to acknowledge it until it's right in your face. It feels very real. Excuse me. Real. You know what I mean? Very honest. That was one of my, that was Mm -hmm. one of my bigger notes was the stage acting feels so authentic. Mm -hmm. Even though it's presented seamlessly gliding onto the stage. We see the scenes in progress and we experience it from some, some as members of the audience, but mostly on stage with the actors. It still feels like we are there. Like, you know, it's a different t- skill set. Mm-hmm. 
Most definitely. Um, and you see, it's so like, it speaks to the actors, all of, which, all of whom were excellent. Um, how seamless that is and how they turn it on, especially Keaton, who I'm not sure if he had done stage for a while. I'm not sure, but what a pro. The guy is the, the guy is so good. I'd call him like I'd call him underrated, but most people I've talked to say, yeah, Michael Keaton's amazing. He's a wonderful actor. Mm-hmm. They just need to return him to main roles. Yeah, I agree. Um, again, the founder. You haven't seen it, have you? I have not. Um, I'm trying not to pick movies I've seen, but mm, the founder. Look, good for this show. I think that we need Beetlejuice goes to goes Hawaii now, just because old <laughs> Michael Keaton in that makeup would be. So funny to me. I, I feel like the only way to do, if we're going to bring back Beetlejuice, the only way to do it is to go like, let's let's take one of those shitty ideas for the seat, like Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian from the eighties, <laughs> and let's just do it yeah. unironically, yeah, unironically with Keaton now in the makeup. Um, no, don't don't touch the musical, please. No cute Leave jokes. Just just make Keaton a weird guy. Excuse me, make Keaton a weird guy. Like take a draft weirdest. from the eighties. Um, yeah, but but I absolutely loved how lovingly crafted the theater stuff was. Mm-hmm. I'm a guy who you know me, Jared. I love the theater, and it just felt so authentic and so real. Um, like you know, they don't let you out in the middle of acts anymore due to security concerns. And they don't like people sneaking in an intermission. You understand? Mm -hmm. So, uh, (laughs) but besides that, it is extremely authentic down to like, they kept the signs on the street. Mm. Tom Hanks and Nora Ephron's lucky guy right there across the street. Um, Phantom right. And the majestic right across the street from the St. James, of course, where it's been forever. Like, they kept all that and it's all there and it's all real. Um, it just felt great. It reminded me, honestly, my first job in the city was, um, I was doomed to fail, uh, because I had a lot of going on at the time, but I would take a walk around the theater district every day. Um, and seeing Birdman fly over all of that was, I don't know, Mm -hmm. this time struck me different because I had spent so much time walking in the theater district, just, just walking around. Yeah, man, you, you can, know, see, you can see stuff. you can see your own footprints while he's flying. You get the feeling of I used uh, to, familiarity on your own. I used to hang out with the people waiting for the rush tickets. <laughs> Did you? That's fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I was there. It was eight thirty in the morning. What else was I going to do? Seriously. Um, which was so nice. But but and, and we're getting too off track. But yeah, like I don't know. All that stuff hit me this time different. Did a uh, Galifianakis hit you different this time? Cause he really, I really liked him. He, um, when this movie came out, it was peak, maybe past the peak hangover, you know? And since then, you know, baskets has showed us a bit more of his range, but at the time Birdman was a big surprise mm-hmm. because he does a great job of being like very serious. It's he fits yeah. right in. It's kind of like when, um, was it? Yeah. Tim, Tim, um, uh, Tim of Tim and Eric. I'm forgetting his last name. Tim Heidecker. Tim Heidecker. Heidecker showed up in Us. Right. Just oh, you're a goof. You are one of those guys, and here you are in a serious role. That's this huh. is like the second time you've mentioned Us in this month. I got to get on this because I loved Get Out. I finally saw that a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And I love Tim. So who knows? 
Did um how did Sorry, obviously no, Tim Heidecker is the last reason to see us. <laughs> <laughs> There's a million other reasons to see that movie before Tim Heidecker, <laughs> who I adore. Um, I brought up I brought up Galifianakis because this time um it was very gla- it was uh, very apparent how the two people who should be the most concerned about the play, uh, Norton and Keaton, they're doing their own crap and losing their minds, and it's the producer whose entire brain is spent on on numbers. He's the one holding it all together and making sure the play actually happens. Like, but is that not true with every show? I guess the actors go off and lose their minds while the producer holds it all together. I guess it just felt very genuine coming from mm-hmm. the kind of person you'd normally. C- you normally make it look blood-sucking. He was actually very sympathetic. He felt like the only... That's true. Like, like he had his, like, you know... <laughs> when he's bragging to... When he's bragging to Keaton at the end, like, yeah, you have so many followers, and his wife just... Yeah. Then uh, Keaton's wife, like, slaps him across the face. Like, he has those moments, but you can tell he cares. He's very genuine in how he approaches Keaton. Like, when he's having his breakdown, even though, again, he lies... He said he's pronounces Scorsese as Scorsese. I love that. I don't know. He's stuck. He's oh, stuck and out. that being stuck a out. lie. Yeah. They all treat. They all. It's funny. They all treat him like scum too. Which yeah. But he. I don't know. You get. You get the sense that he cares, or at the very least, Keaton thinks he does. Wanted to do one last me ramble on about a visual aspect that would work so much better if you saw the scene. When uh, Stone, when Stone and Norton have, are making out on the roof, and she just gets up and leaves, and it's following her down the stairs, and you hear him talking from off screen, that really struck me, and I liked it a lot. And I, and and it's definitely because it's more unconventional. It says a lot more about her position in conjunction with him, how he's this um he's this thing omnipresent thing sneaking up behind her, going, "Where are you going? Slow down. Come back here." That kind of thing, and she's just walking off. I liked that. I just think visually it was very strong. Yeah. Then they fuck. Then they fuck above. Then they fuck above her dad, and then Norton disappears from the movie. From the rest of the movie. Um, I have a couple of those. <laughs> yes, go ahead. If you don't mind, please. I don't have anything to add about that. I think you did a great job. <laughs> I totally agree with you, and have nothing to add or contrast. But I have some more great visuals from Birdman while we're at it, as we kind of you know. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm avoiding I'm avoiding talking about the the flying the flying scene to the end just because I think that just deserves its own spice. Yeah, yeah. How about this? Sure. We'll talk about my visuals, then we'll talk about the flying in the end, as we kind of because I I basically run out. We pretty much hit everything I got, except for these in the end. Okay, here's the list. The first shot of the meteor hitting the Earth absolutely incredible right yeah oh, like it man. shows it, it, i don't i i don't know what the purpose of it is maybe to show this extremely small scale relative to the meteor killing the dinosaurs you know <laughs> and uh, I, but like, that but that would make sense because it tracks with emma stone stuff later on where she shows him the smallest time of humans humans have existed and then he wipes his face with it it tracks with that that's right that's right <laughs> a really great visual um, amazing first, I, I, I have it written here. Amazing first line from Jared. <laughs> How did we end up here? This place is horrible. Smells like balls. No, you have to, you have to really get the ah part. It smells like balls. You get that ah. 
I love Birdman. What a crazy, like, <laughs> I can't believe that they just did Batman. <laughs> and obviously it's to tell a greater point about what is art, what is commerce, and what does any of it mean? Is art not commerce? You know, when he goes out in the street in Times Square and he goes viral, uh, is that art? Is that commerce? It became both. Whether he wanted to or not, it was an accident. And it became more worthy art than perhaps this entire thing that we're watching come together or Birdman 30 years ago in the first place. Yeah. And all he did was walk around na- you know, half naked in Times Square. Showing it all, bearing his soul, if you will. Um, there's that great scene where Riggins walking through the street and the homeless guy uh, is like auditioning for him. Did you need a range was his line? He was doing the exact same I, things uh, the first uh, guy did as well. I liked that. I thought at first, right. first I thought it was the same actor, but I don't think so. Um, That'd be also pretty cute if it was, though. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, there's a guy in a bumblebee costume that shows up mm-hmm. in the slow motion. I, for, I that forgot is, about that. That blew my mind this time. I was like, "What the fuck? What is going on?" But. <laughs> The Bumblebee guy, every single thing in this movie builds on its thesis, whether intentional or unintentional. It's incredible. Um, And yeah, I have written here and we're going to kind of go into it here. Is this a movie about the stigmatization of performance, of acting, of filmmaking, of not being able to make a film that says anything without disastrous gimmickry, like doing it all in one take? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, I, I just, I, this movie, I love the way it makes me think. I love the way it makes me feel. Um, yeah. And that's all the notes I have. <laughs> it is a startlingly, don't take this word the wrong way, a startlingly pretentious movie to have been so yes. successful. And I think pretentious as a word is already overused to hell and back it doesn't mean anything anymore it just means you said something that i don't understand and i hate you for it right but no but it has to be pretend see that's the thing they had to have do it in one shot they had to do the drum motif they had to make it it had to be michael keaton and edward norton those yeah like it had to be at least those elements and everything else is just a nice you know naomi watts is great andrew arispo is great like Every other piece came together right, mm-hmm. but it had to be those four things. God. Like, had to be Keaton, had to be super serious, pretentious actor Norton, had to be the drums, had to be the one shot. Yeah, it does feed into the thesis. It has to be really weird, or there's a gimmick, or something needs to go so wrong, we all talk about it, and that's why we remember it, and then later talk kindly about the rest, even though we really just remember that time the, the main character came in through the back door and in his underpants wielding his finger around as if it was a gun. Which, by the way, talk about all-time theater acting in film. Mm-hmm. Keaton totally going into that scene. Well, that wig was hilarious, by the way. Oh, my God, that goddamn um, wig. But, but, like, but like Keaton totally going into that scene and the audience just following along with it while mm-hmm. they do it. Ah, oh, man. Ah. Oh. Like, he he forced... He, like, forced them to go all, along with it. <laughs> and... Norton Norton's character in the back just like going along with it too. That's the last time you see him in the film. Right. From a distance, unimportant. Like the last that's that and Keaton like looking over and seeing the two of them him and his uh Norton and his daughter kiss. That's the last and real interaction you have with the character outside of Keaton 
entering the theater. You don't really see him ever again, unless I'm mistaken. I could have sworn that's the last of the character. It's the last, like, major contribution he gives. Maybe not literally, but it's the last. I mean, besides being in the scene at the last, an opening night or the last preview or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we go into, like, the end stuff, I wanted to bring up, uh, this is a Fat City moment where you have the old guy who's not doing too hot interacts with the young guy who's got promise, but is it, well, okay, uh, he wasn't, Bridges wasn't an asshole in Fat City, but it's still that, like, weird place of their, they are both peers, but they have superiority, superiority stuff with each other. I liked it. It was a weird, weird relationship. You expected them to actually fight, but the only real physical conflict is Keaton beating the crap out of him, <laughs> be it with a newspaper or those times he has to sock him in the face. Right. What do you think the Norton character was meant to be? Because my, my whole thing, I thought that he's very obviously, the way they talk to, talk to Norton, all the women, how they talk to him is just, yeah, you have no internality, you are on the stage, and you have nothing else. I figured that was a, oh, he's going to turn out exactly like Keaton's character, but instead of being a washed-up, not Batman, he's going to be a washed-up Christian Bale doing a Tom Cruise, but Tom Cruise. Sorry, that was a that weird exactly, way to put it. Weird way to put it. That is ex- No, but that's exactly right. Okay. Okay, good. I, I meant like, the last part. Weird phrasing, but what, what's up? I, I mentioned this. I mentioned this earlier, but... Ed Norton is every bit of what, like, Riggin wants to be, mm-hmm. even though he is doomed to end up in the same spot, if that makes sense. And they're not yeah. much younger than each other, but younger enough for Keaton to be like, we need to bring this guy in. He's got a lot of theater cred. He's XYZ. And he ends up being, you know, barely a person, impossible to work with, extremely pretentious. Everything that Riggin Thompson wants to be when Birdman makes him throw a fit in the dressing room. Yeah. Again, it's Fat City. That kind of that, that kind of relationship and, and the eventual the eventuality of giving yourself into a an absurd ideal. When he gets really drunk at night and like falls asleep on the stoop, I secretly wanted him to look off and see Birdman just waving his waving his wings and then he gets up and dances after him like Tevia dancing after the fiddler and fiddler on the roof. <laughs> that of course didn't happen, but the next best thing did, <laughs> which is he flew. That's right. Okay. Excellent segue, Jared. Amazing segue. <laughs> Thank you. Um so there are two flying scenes in this movie. Um there's that first one where where Riggin takes off and he flies through the theater district. Uh, and then, you know, lands eventually, uh, really beautiful, fantastic with that great string piece Mm -hmm. and he lands. And as he goes into the St. James theater, a taxi, a cabbie runs in after him saying, (laughs) Hey, where's my money? Which is just the best way to reveal that you've been dreaming the whole time. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the ending where he is not dreaming, it is very real, but then is it, but uh, a very frustrating ending to this film for me. Um, you know what I mean? I was very frustrated. Well, let's talk about the first scene. Uh, sure. I love it. Like when he, when he takes off that first dream, kind of the, the daydream sequence where he's just kind of wandering around, flying around. Ah! 
Still got it. Still got it. Got a got a chuckle out of me. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> um. Hmm. Also, it's really funny that in that scene, he's <laughs> Birdman saying again. They don't want. They don't want this pretentious bullshit. They want explosions. And then this movie made back like ten times its budget or something. I love that was funny. Of course, <laughs> always funny when that stuff happens. I get the point, but it's so funny. Keaton going on to be the vulture the very next year. Like, come on, that's, that's funny. right. That that's was so funny. It feels ten years apart, but really, like to my earlier point, Keaton was right back in the mix. Like right after this. Oh. Oh, guy came back, came back with a with a thunder in his heart, which proves the movie's point in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. That really set him on the road back to Batman. Yeah. Eventually, the eventually eventually the commercial gets you, gets you by the toes. Then you're uh, advertising for Diet Coke in your Batmobile, which is still my favorite favorite commercial of all time. Mostly because it's Alfred rambling on about Batman picking up three cases of Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> um. Um, you t- wait. So I have my own ideas of the the en- the flight through to the end. You talk about yours, just because you know you were talking about your ideas on the on the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I loved the first flight, the beautiful dreamlike. You know, clearly a dream. We're here in the real world. We're watching him kind of soar above everything. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they already think he's Birdman, so. There he is again, like just fully living it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an ego thing also. Like you're kind of Superman above the clouds, this kind of super being who can see above everyone mm-hmm. in that moment on your way to opening night. Um, when he shoots himself and wakes up in the hospital and climbs out of the hospital window, having. So the way the movie ends, uh, he flies, He you know, he flies through the air. Please Phil, let me uh, remind me if I've missed a beat here because I think I have. He flies and he go, uh, he lands and he goes into the theater. The cabbie says, "Hey, wait up! Where's my money?" Right? They do the preview. They do the opening night, mm-hmm. and the gun is loaded with a real bullet, and he shoots his nose off, mm-hmm. and he's fine. But he has a different nose, and he has raves now from from the New York Times. And it, of course, the interview reads, "The unexpected virtue of ignorance." The subtitle of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they leave and he climbs out of the hospital window. Emma Stone is like, dad, dad, wait. And then she looks down and then looks up and smiles. And that's the picture. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why, <laughs> why did we do that? I feel um, like that's just, that kills it. Uh, that's the kind of ending you expect. You expect, especially, um, Okay, the story's over, he's been redeemed, and now the final pa- aspect of redemption is death. That's been a thing since ages. Darth Vader, it happened with Vader, obviously, the obvious pick. Um, Walter White with Britain Breaking Bad. To complete, your, to complete your path to redemption, you must die, because that will make you sympathetic, because you gave yourself up. Um, I, on a surface read, yeah, I'm totally with you. I think that's like a okay, that did nothing. But I took it as um the whole flight scene after like seeing the indulgences of what Birdman will bring. Um his flight that's him freeing himself from the Birdman persona. His that's excellent. 
his active active attempts to pull away from it the flight is him i'm free from this burden this thing that is ha- that has haunted me in my very very conceited pretentious career he lands he lands as if in a dream and then goes into the into the theater um i think yeah, I'm getting super pretentious, but this movie invites it. Uh, him shooting this is, himself. This in- is a movie. Hang on, I have to stop you here. Sorry, go, go, this go, is go, a go. movie that invites it on purpose because that is the point of this film. Yeah. Analysis of Birdman is pretentious because it's part of it. Oh man, but I, oh man, but what I, what I'm talking, what I'm saying right now, I feel like I'm teleporting back to like junior year of college, and I have to write an essay for my film studies class that I was, I'm half asleep for. Welcome home. Ah, it smells like. Mm, pinnacle vodka and <laughs> chips. <Feel> uh, that. <laughs> the um, shooting himself in the head after completing his his play is you know he destroyed his ego and the Birdman stuff for good. This is all a process of him getting over himself and seeing Birdman on the, taking a dump when he uh, after after again more visual uh, more visual stuff goes in the bathroom. Pulls off his mask, which is very clearly beaked like a bird. Pulls that, That's pulls that mask off. He sees his pathetic alter ego on the toilet. That's him pulling off, getting rid of everything about this Birdman thing that has made him feel terrible about his life and his career. Um, yeah, and shooting himself in the head. He gets rid of, gets rid of, again, gets rid of Birdman. He also becomes the artist that ed norton wants him to be and he wants to be um himself and him seeing the pretty birds and jumping or the flying that's all symbolic for him leaving the art business she looks down and thinks oh god is he okay and then looks at him and goes oh he's free she's happy for her father because he's no longer going to be tormenting himself with this art business which has only destroyed their family that's the way I took it. It's that's a beautiful read. Oh, thank you. I, otherwise, like I don't know how how I don't I don't know how else it was meant to be taken. At least from the director's perspective, the ending. I mean, the whole window. Does he is he jumping? Is he falling? Like outside of I don't, redemption I don't, equals death. I don't think I guess. you. I don't think you can interpret it a different way. If I'm being honest, that was a really great thorough read. Okay, thank you. <laughs> cool really <laughs> i don't have a lot to think. add i don't know like that's wonderful yeah oh. that's exactly it i guess i guess what you could really say in the end is this movie captured itself perfectly when uh keaton was standing up on the building building ledge is this for real or are you shooting a film a film you people are full of shit <laughs> <laughs> that entire that that little exchange was oh there's the film i get it I that's amazing. I understand now. <laughs> uh, so Jared, listen. On a scale of one to five, what would you rate Birdman? Uh, I don't know, three and a half, four. That sounds about right. Yeah. Three and a, three and a half when it works, four when it three and a half when it's fine, four when it's oh. Sick. Sure, yeah, I get I'll that. Sit, I'll sit at three and a half because I got a, I have a standard to keep for myself, I guess. <laughs> That's right. I mean, your your full, you know, your Birdman mask is is totally on 
right now. <laughs> given that, given such a thorough and beautiful read, I was expecting at least, you know, at least four. That's interesting. There's some things that just didn't work in my I opinion. Some things that were just a little too cutesy. But it's also stuff that in hindsight is like, oh, they're going to mention Justin Bieber. And you go, holy crap, I haven't thought of that kid in a, in like years. And then you remember it's 2014. It was, it was very of its time. Although yes. even then, Justin Bieber, he was, you know. He, he'd been coming a little passe, but he was still a target because, I don't know, girl, teenage girls like him. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, but, you know me. Uh, you know me. Uh, this was five stars in 2014, and it's five stars now. I love it so <laughs> yes. much. Uh, it's just amazing. And uh, I give five stars to anything I find uh, remotely amazing. So there you are. Oh, I just realized. I apologize. I don't mean to backtrack. No, no, please. Good. I'm backtracking angrily now since I don't have to apologize. Uh, the, scene, the scene where he shoots himself in the head. Uh, that's, that's like uh, the first mm, obvious cut in the entire film. That's right. right? That's right. I had a point to make on that and how it works with the ending, but I do think the cut, that it's the real cut in the film where you're supposed to notice it, I think that's him separating himself from his neurotic nar- self-narrative. It also helps if you're of the mind that it's a dream, at all a dream at the end, which mm. I don't, eh, I eh. have two worlds about that. I think your read is better. Um, it's, in the I don't show know. Do we... I'll call it the definitive read of Birdman. <laughs> it's i think that the whole it was a dream all along can work there are movies that do it infamously um jacob's ladder is one super super mario brothers 2 is one infamous of course uh, the wizard of oz literally yeah i can't you said the man we got to do wizard of oz i gotta teach you a lesson <laughs> we're never doing wizard of oz oh no what is there's it's dope but that's about that what is, there le- what is there left to say? <laughs> but, yeah. The whole aspect of it's it can be a dream is cool, but it might just be the, all the David Lynch films I've watched, but trying to avoid that sort of idea has always been beneficial to talking about a movie. You can easily say, oh, it was a dream. It's like, well, what does that do? What does that say about the movie? Does it do anything right. for you? Um, no, this is, it's, it's symbolic. There are some literal aspects. He definitely hurt himself, went to the hospital and it's just him destroying his ego, destroying his complications. And then, uh, probably going on to live a happy life at that con at that uh, house he wants to sell. There you go. Yep. Also the idea of you have to, you have to commit suicide on stage to be noteworthy is so funny but so bleak and so true the idea of a tortured artist has to torture himself for for everyone's amusement to be noteworthy <laughs> bleak stuff but it's still true it's still what's it's expected in the world of, of birdman in the world of birdman you bet oh yeah yep that's um, uh, i think that's my those are my final feelings on the birdman we fought with the turtles. We soared in the sky with Birdman, and uh, we're packing up this week's episode of uh, Ammonite Movie Night, Jared. Bit of yeah. a crazy week, um, but it's done. Would you like to get out your lucky coin, and we'll flip on who announces next week's movie first? 
You can, you can right. call it this week. All right, I'm going to say Tails. It was Tails. Kevin, you are going to be watching the 2003 film Zatuichi, as directed by Takeshi Kitano. Oh, shit. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. This is a good entry point for uh, for uh, Takeshi Kitano. It's uh, using an old a character named Zatoichi. He's a beloved character, direct many used many times. He's uh, are you familiar with Django? Yes. He's pretty much Django of uh, Japan in that he's been used. He's had so many movies over the years. He's an iconic figure, and at some point in the two thousand in the two thousands, a very famous guy directed him. Hit the character. All right, but what's your pick? Uh, well, I was looking at... So it's funny, because I said last week, uh, dear dear friend of the show and member of Ammonite Nash, Brandon Yu, had suggested many movies. And he suggested this one. Um, but I had seen it leaving HBO Max on February 1st. And I was like, wow, I heard a lot about this. And uh, now we're going to watch it. From 2013... The neo western Blue Rune. Oh Jesus! Oh boy! <laughs> oh, we're in some. We're in for some fun times. Seems like a bummer. Uh, oh Eve yeah, Plum, baby. Jan Brady in cast. Oh yeah, baby. You thought you thought a uh, fat fat city was a hard one to get through and talk about. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it's got great reviews from pretty much everyone I trust on Letterboxd, four and up from ev- almost everybody. Yeah, I don't remember what I don't remember if I uh, got to, got around to putting a number to when I watched it, but I know I liked it a lot. I also liked Green Room. Oh, you you did see it? Yes, I've seen it. We should do I've Green Room. S- I've seen this. I've seen Green Room, another <laughs> dreary goddamn film. <laughs> Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay. I'm going to ex- know ex- the exact second you've uh, finished it. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Well, I wanted to watch it. It's, uh, I think, a far... I wanted to go as far away from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as humanly possible. This is pretty far. So you're not a, that's... You're very far from Manhattan right now with Blue Bird. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not a bad double feature, actually. Yeah, it'll be interesting, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> very, very, very interesting. It's going to be very interesting next week. Oh, wait a minute. This guy's Green Room? Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Have you seen Green Room, yeah? Nope. It is in my wa- it's on my watch list. Very good movie. All right, so that's next week. A beat Takeshi's Zatoichi, or as it's known in America, The Blind Swordsman Zatoichi. Uh, and then also on HBO Max for at least until, mm, what is that, Monday? At least until Tuesday of next week. Blue Rune. Blue Rune. Uh, so totally fun. Just like a nice, fun for the whole family lineup of movies. Uh, just total laugh riot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what else is it, Kevo? What else can you say? Yikes. Uh <laughs> I already said laugh, so I can't say barrel of laughs, but that's what I wanted to say. Um, anyway, of, looks like it's from- going to be a couple of crazy movies. So we'll be right back here Wednesday to talk about them. Uh, follow us on Instagram at AMNTINC. 
and uh, we'll let you know if any other social platforms happen to spring up uh, depending on my workload this week. Well, welcome <laughs> to the put. chuckle. Welcome to the chuckle factory, kids. Welcome to the chuckle factory, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Say goodnight, Kevin. Good night, Kevin. <laughs>